Welcome to Geek Catch-Up. I'm Kyle Eckert alongside Chris Heck. We're two lifelong friends with a passion for all things geek, whether it's gaming, movies, television, wrestling, comics, whatever. If it's nerdy, there's a good chance we're into it. You are listening to Chapter 9 of Season 1. Today, it's all about sports, both retro and extreme. As Chris and I finished up our seasons of Ken Griffey Jr. Presents Major League Baseball on the SNES to wrap up the first ever Retro Sports League Challenge, You'll get to hear all the highlights, highs, and lows from our respective seasons. Also, we had the pleasure of attending the inaugural game of the reformed Vince McMahon-backed XFL, a day which certainly had its share of interesting stories. Kyle and I continue to be blown away by all the support for this podcast. If you have enjoyed the show, we bet there are folks you know that will enjoy it as well, so be sure to follow us on social media and share Geek Catch-Up with others. We appreciate each and every one of you, and thanks for joining with us to explore and celebrate the world of geekery. So back in Chapter 4, Kyle and I introduced all of you to the inaugural Geek Catch-Up Retro Sports League Challenge, where we are highlighting one of our favorite Super Nintendo games, Ken Griffey Jr. presents Major League Baseball. This iconic retro sports game was originally released on the SNES in 1994 and sold over 1.2 million copies. In fact, it's a game that Kyle and I have been rivals in for more than 20 years. Now in today's chapter, we are going to go back through everything we shared about the game. We'll leave checking out chapter 4 to you, but we are going to share a story about what happened to Kyle as the challenge progressed and then jump into our stats from the second half of the season as well as the playoffs. So Kyle, let's get into it right here. How did the second half of your season go? The second half of the season was very interesting for me because the entire Retro Sports League Challenge has been a rocky road. Uh, Naturally, things like what I'm about to say happen when you deal with old video games and old consoles, and I touched on it a little bit back in Chapter 4, where on several occasions I had my game reset on me and I had to start over. And I'm legitimately playing this game on a 26-year-old cartridge. Uh, It was the original cartridge that my brother and I got back in 1994 when we were kids. And then to double down on that with the risks, I was also playing on my Retron 3, which is a 3-in-1 system. It's an SNES, NES, Genesis combined system. I do have my original SNES, but it's all boxed up, so I I chose to play it on my Retron 3, and I thought I'd have success because I've had success with this machine before, but in the end, it failed me a little bit because I had all of these problems. I actually had my game reset on me a total of four times throughout the entire Retro Sports League Challenge. Every time the text would come over, I think I, I just, my heart sank a little bit more. We put so much time and effort and planning into this whole challenge, and we considered a whole bunch of different ways that maybe we could restart it, redo it, whatever, but we wanted to be transparent with the fans. You know, it is what it is when it comes to retro stuff. Sometimes things don't work out quite as perfect as you want, but honest to God, man, your resolve was was admirable. The the amount of Griffey games you continued to play to help keep this alive and, and try and do what we could to keep our dream of working through 
all the way to a World Series. Um, but ultimately, it didn't quite shake out that way. Still a great time. I'll let you keep going on the story. Yeah, it was a little rough. Uh, I was just committed. I was committed to making it work, to getting through this. Every time it was a heartbreaker, and I, I would lose a little bit, but I'd always bounce back and say, you know what? I'm getting through this. I'm going to do it. So out the gate, we actually had a brief miscommunication when we went to play our shortened season. And you can play either a proposed format playoffs or a normal format uh, with the divisions, excuse me, where you can either play the 1993 division setup, which is just two divisions per league, or you can play the proposed 1994 format, which transitions each American League, National League into three separate divisions. Uh, Now in MLB, they play with four divisions. So... It's progressed a little bit. So we had a brief miscommunication where I played the proposed format. Chris played the normal format. And he had already started and got a little farther. So after three games, I had to restart. No biggie. It was three games. They take 20 minutes apiece. So I was like, all right, it's fine. I'll get back. And then the second time, I was a little frustrated on the restart. So one game in, I banged the table. (laughs) And when I banged the table that I was playing on... It shook the Retron 3, and like everything glitched out and erased <laughs> my game. It showed you. <laughs> so, it showed me, and so that one's my fault. That one's on me. I'll own that. So third time was the charm. That was when I got through 10 games, got to make it to Chapter 4. Uh, it was all good to go, and then we, we took a bit of a break. Yeah, it was confident. We were so confident. Like, yep, okay, yep. I got over the hump. I found out what I need to do. Obviously, don't touch the table. Like, don't look at we're, it. We're wrong. good to go. So I played. Don't look at it wrong. Pet it. You know, treat it nicely. That good. You know, good girl. Good girl. You're doing your job. So I got through the ten games. Made the chapter. Then uh, a little while back, or a little while after that, we played the eleventh game, which I shot a video of. It's up on our YouTube channel. I played that eleventh game. And it was awesome. All was going well. Had a nice like yep. walk off win in that. Spoiler for the you know it's still a solid fun game to play of that eleventh game if you could check it out. But I, I did that once, and then a week later I came back to say okay, time to buckle down and finish out the season. I've got fifteen games left to get to twenty six, and as soon as I popped it in, everything was gone, and it was just like, oh my god, where am I at? I'm halfway through the season. My entire recording is gone, all the records, all the stats, all gone. I didn't know what to do. And that was when I I think I texted you and I said, I honestly don't know what to do. Do I play singles and track the stats manually or do I just start over from the beginning? We had a long discussion about it, lots of text messages. You know, at that point, being 11 games in, now you're talking, what, like four to five hours worth of gameplay at around 20 minutes. You know, yeah. it definitely just continued to beat us down. I, every time we thought we were in the clear <laughs> and and we could get through the, the retro challenge and, and finish it out, just was not in the cards. So, But to your credit, we both were off for that Monday. We had both had long weekends, and you just said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go at it. I'm going to make this happen. Yeah, it's true. I, I buckled down and said, I'm, I can still do this. Like, I did the math. One last crack. But – I was to be shut down one more time because I immediately, I started playing and I got through three games and I was like, okay, three games. It was an hour. I'm feeling good. I've got a three day weekend. I'm going to run upstairs. I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to eat some lunch and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to crush at least the first half of the season 
on the on what was a Saturday. So I had a Saturday, Sunday, and the Monday off. I go upstairs and I take the shower, eat lunch, I come back to play, and my Retron three was acting very funny. And you can just kind of tell with old sports games and old yep. consoles in general when something is about to go wrong. It's like the <laughs> air. Something in the air has changed. And sure enough, just the screen just glitched out on me. And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot win. Like, what do I need to do to play these games? And I was done. I was like, I don't know what to do. I can't win. I think I took like a 90-minute <laughs> break. And I was like, screw this game. Screw the Retro League Sports League Challenge. I was pissed. I was texting Chris. We were trying to, I think you were trying to console me. <laughs> and we were talking about other options that maybe I should go to a retro game store and buy oh, another yeah. copy of Ken Griffey Jr. I like, maybe should get out my SNES. And I was like, no, no, it's not my cartridge. It's not my console. Like, it's the game. It's the game's I was, fault. I was being so gentle with you, but, like, I was also trying to nudge you in the direction of, like, don't give it up. But it's almost like when you're consoling somebody that just had, like, a death in the family. And it's like, uh, you got to talk to them really cautiously but to make sure you don't lose them. But you also need to tell them things that are important. <laughs> right. And it was just, I was so heartbroken and mad and i didn't know what to do and i want at that point it was the fourth time it had reset i wanted to give up i was done like any sort of motivation i had to come back and to continue playing was all gone you'd already played pretty much almost a full sh season for what a we were trying to yeah, do with the 26 season. games you you had almost gone through that entirely with the three or four resets prior and then you had to, you were back at zero yet again every time and the worst part about it is the oakland athletics <laughs> which i think i i touched on in chapter four the orioles season because i was playing with the baltimore orioles their season opens with the oakland athletics away in oakland so with this number of resets i've played the oakland athletics <laughs> so many times over and over and over and i'm just sick of seeing mark mcguire i'm sick of seeing the damn yep. athletics Come at me. I don't want to play them anymore. And then not to mention, you know, the games that you play 2-3, I keep playing these same teams. Like, it wouldn't be so bad if I got to play sure. a different team each time. But, no, it's the same team. Yeah, it was definitely rough. And it kind of got to a point where, like, I was almost feeling bad that that I was getting to progress through the season without having the issues. So, it, it definitely created yeah. a, a, a weird dynamic. But... But you ultimately buckled down, and and how many games did you play in a day or two? And it, well, I ended up playing a full season. So all twenty six, all of this, like I said, all of this went down with with the losing of the eleven games, and then the double reset. That all happened on a Saturday morning, and by the time like two p.m. came around, I was once again saying, "Okay, here's the math: twenty minutes per game." 26 games it's the only way i'm gonna get through this i have to play ken griffey jr for the next like two and a half yep. days straight and luckily I, we had nothing on the schedule i didn't have anything else to do it was a planned weekend at home i think the weather was a little rough outside so we weren't gonna go anywhere we weren't gonna do anything just buckle down and play a whole <laughs> lot of griffey and i did i started off but mind you i was pissed so i'm playing pissed and I'm swinging at everything. 
I'm pitching as fast as I can. There's no thought in the in the game itself. I'm just playing as quickly as possible, which is not my style for Ken Griffey Jr. I like to play a slow-paced game where I'm thoughtfully like pitching in and out, in and out. I'm taking pitches. I'm not swinging at everything. I'm making sure that I'm getting that starter on the other yep. team worn out to knock them out of the game, go deep into the bullpen like classic baseball tactics. So I abandon all that, and I'm just swinging <laughs> at everything, and I'm playing frustrated, and I end up going 5-5 five and five out of those first 10 games, which then also makes me really pissed because I previously had gone 7-3 and three or had better records. So clearly playing mad and playing pissed was affecting my win-loss record. We learned throughout the season, too, was that the computer is no slouch in this game, and those top teams... I mean, I know for me at least that every time I would lose, I they were right there. There was no wiggle room until yeah. maybe just the very, very end of the season. Some of the folks in my division lost like an extra game, but I, I felt like I was constantly either tied or only one game up on any of these teams. So I, I pretty much won by one game in my division, and I only lost six total games throughout my entire season. So we knew, like, okay, even making the playoffs was going to be – was going to be tough after that first 10 games for you on that fifth reset. <laughs> and that fifth reset, yeah. And I, so I knew I had to win. What did end up happening was I calmed myself down. And I said, there's no reason to continue to play quickly or to play anger, like through with anger, because it's still a 20 minute game. I also realized that whether I'm swinging every pitch or I'm taking my time, my average playthrough is still 20 to 22 minutes a game. So, why am I playing this way? Let's get back to my original strategy, calm down, and play the game that the way that you like to play the game. So when you look at my overall stats on the back half of that fifth playthrough, I start to play better. And in fact, I put together a solid win streak of six yeah. or seven games where I'm just, you know, knocking them out, knocking them out. I beat the Angels, Royals, Rangers, Royals again, Rangers again. And then the Red Sox, all in a row, did end up losing to the Yankees, but then beat the Tigers, Brewers, uh, Cleveland, and the Red Sox again. So on from my 10 through 20 stretch, I basically went yeah. like 9-1 and one and had a really good run at it. So my confidence was boosted that, okay, despite all this, you know, <laughs> craziness with my game resetting I can still do this I can still make the playoffs I can make this happen and it becomes a story in the end though what ended up happening was that there were three days left in the season and I only had one game left to play and the Blue Jays had three games left to play so you know they had two games in the hole of me they were 17 and 6 I was 17 and 8 going into this final three-day stretch and the way Griffey works if you play a game and then there's a two-day break and then you play a game the rest of the league continues to play but you don't see the results until you yep. play your next game and then it gives you like this whole screen where it says like oh September 1st here are the scores a lot of baseball games and sports games sure, continue yeah. to do that to this day and so I go into that final game of the season against the Brewers knowing I had to win but I was also confident looking at the records of the overall divisions that even if I win and the Blue Jays also win and end up with a better record, I'll get right. the wild card spot. 
Like at bare minimum, I will get the the third or fourth wild card spot because I believe at that point you had already confirmed yeah. you were in the playoffs. Yeah, and I knew that there was wild cards that were that were getting in as well. Yeah. So I was really confident that it was I was going to work out. I was going to get this win. I was also a little confident that the computer assist <laughs> of an old video game was going to boost me up a little bit that in a pinch situation like this, the game gets tight. You have to do your part, but the yeah. game will help you. Sometimes. Uh, I think a game's like NBA Jam actually has a computer assist toggle. You can turn it on or you can turn it off to be able yep. to keep the game close if you want. Super Techno Bowl on the SNES is very similar as well, where the game will get harder or easier depending on how your season's going and how right. everyone else is playing. Just to, to help you along, like if you're struggling, the game does help you. So I was confident that it was going to work out that way. So I, I play my game against the Brewers. I win. I'm like, okay, I've won. Uh, I'm going to end up going 18-8. and eight. That should be good enough to get me the wild card spot. I beat the game, and the screens pop up. And I, I ended up recording <laughs> all of this, so we, we may end up posting the into this this little handheld you know, cell phone camera video of me filming all of this going down. If I win, then the screen pops up. It's showing me the results from the previous two days. The Blue Jays won one, and they lost one. So I was like, okay. At the end of all this season, the Blue Jays were 19-7. and seven. I was 18-8, and eight, and I knew record-wise I didn't win the division, but I was going to make the playoffs based on the wild card. So it's running through these screens. I'm doing the math. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got the wild card. And then all of a sudden the screen switches. And the way it was presented to me, it made it seem like I had won the division and it was showing a play-in game. Because that's, that's actually what had happened the wild to card you. Was, yeah, it was a play-in game. Sudden death. And I'm like, okay, sweet. I ended up winning the division. That's really interesting. I don't know how the math worked out, but I won the division. I'm going to at least get to the ALCS. And then... The screen switches, and it's showing me the World Series. Oh. And it's showing me the World Series between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Blue Jays. And I'm like, I didn't make straight the Straight gut punch. Like, just straight gut punch. Like, it hurts so bad. I'm thinking, oh, my God, here I am. I've just played the better part of 30 <laughs> games over three days. I went 18-8. and eight. I played well, and I didn't make the playoffs. Like, it was so sad. Like, if we end up posting the video, you can hear it in my voice. I'm devastated. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, just dying. Like, oh, I didn't make the playoffs. It was rough. I remember when you texted me, and, oh. and we learned how it all went down. Uh, you know, it's just some of those old video games, and, and Griffey is not easy, you know. It is something that a uh, swing of any bat – can change a game. Sometimes the computer seems like they have no clue what they're doing, and other times they're just incredibly impossible to beat. So props, absolutely, the fact that you were able to get that many yeah. games done. Um, I think in total you <laughs> probably played almost twice as many games as what we needed for the season itself. But yeah. you were a trooper. You stuck in there. I was a little worried at times, and I wasn't going to – wasn't going to hold it against you if it if it didn't go that way and you didn't get through them all just because of how many times. Like once, okay, whatever. But two, yeah. three, four times, 
it's just the nature of 30 year old technology but i think all in all we were at least we were able like you were able to get through a full season you got that like you got the chance to get in right it didn't completely screw you yeah. out of at least having that opportunity to to keep moving forward but it was a bummer it was a bummer and then what made it even bitter it was like salt in an open wound i had a better record i had the second best record in baseball the only team that had a better record than me was Toronto. And because of the way the divisions worked out, I didn't make the playoffs. And so that, you know, that, like I said, that's just salt and open wound. I was pissed. Like, of course, I go 18 and 8. Everyone else in this league is sitting at 17 and 9 or 16 and 10, like way worse than I am. And I don't get to make the playoffs. Yeah. But you know what? That's the way it goes sometimes. With the way sports and wild cards, you never know. That is true, and it probably also kind of comes back to what you mentioned at the beginning when we got mixed up on the formats. Because I've I have thought about the fact that, like, what if we wouldn't have done the standard format? What if we had gone to the proposed format, like you thought? And yeah. you know, would that have made a difference? You know, the world will never know. Yeah, never know. Alternate universe, maybe. We'll, we'll find out. But yeah, so but we did get through uh, the entire 26 games, each of us. And if you remember in Chapter 4, we took you through the stats that we were tracking for our first 10 games. So we did track up the rest of the stats. And then since I did make the playoffs, I do have some stats that we're going to circle back to as far as what happened in the NLCS uh, and beyond. So let's take a look here at our overall season stats, Kyle. And just to recap for everybody, we track wins, losses, runs scored, runs allowed, hits for, hits against, home runs, RBIs, and strikeouts game to game. And we have season totals and averages, as well as a couple of our uh, central, you know, offensive MVPs, if you will. So let's jump into it here, Kyle. Looking at runs scored throughout, I think. When I glanced at both of our stats, you know, we actually stayed very consistent throughout the whole season, which I was pretty interested in. But looking at runs scored, let's look at the whole season, not just the back half. How many runs scored did you end up with? Uh, 110. 110, okay. So 110. you picked up your offense a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because my original playthrough, I had 42 after 10 games. So like I said, that the game, it felt like the game was helping me out on the back end, like pushing me through after going 5-5. Five and five that it, I was starting to hit a little more, score a little more. I had some big games, at least two. I can see two double-digit games, a lot of seven, eight, nine-run games as well. So I ended up with with an average of just over four runs per game. It was like 4.23 games or runs per game there. Awesome, awesome. But your hitting prowess just blew mine out of the water. Yeah, I think my hits were a little bit higher. It was interesting. On I started off the season a lot stronger as far as runs scored goes. I had number of much higher scoring games. And then in the back end, I had two games where I scored 10 runs, and the rest were all single digits. Lots of twos and threes that I can see here on our tracker. But I did ultimately end up with 146 total or uh, an average per game of 5.6. So it was a little harder or a little higher. I know for me, I'm, I just kind of go in and just swing at them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I found that the Expos, more than I ever remembered, had a pretty good offensive team. I was slightly worried about it going into this challenge just because right. the Expos aren't a sexy team in, in Griffey. It's not a team that, like, everybody flocks to if you're just playing a pickup game. 
So yeah, the the mid '90s Expos are not right, not a stellar right. team. But then looking back on them, they had Larry Walker, they had Moises Alou, they had Marquise Grissom. You know that outfield was was great, and all those guys had pretty good hitting careers as well. So so that was a plus. But let's take on the flip side, right? So we were looking at uh, how much we were scoring, but let's take a look at how much scoring we allowed. So what were your runs given up? My runs given up after 26 games was only 67 runs. Wow. Yeah, I really brought the defensive game like hard in in this. Like I, I kept people to a lot of single digits. I don't actually think all season the highest anyone ever scored on me was nine. Wow. Uh, and that got away from me in the last six games of the season. The Tigers scored nine on me, but no one else. Looking at it briefly here, I have one nine, one eight, but everyone else is five or below. That's super impressive. I I definitely got a little bit better on the scoring as the season went on. Like my first, in the first four games, I had two games that I gave up uh, eleven runs, but then <laughs> beyond that, and especially in the back of the season, the highest I gave up was only five. So I did tighten up a little bit there. But I do feel like the stats and everything we've seen so far really trends that you are clearly the better defensive player. And then maybe <laughs> I turned out to be a little bit better offensive player. So if we ever get to that in-person World Series showdown, now that we know so much more about Griffey than we probably ever did from the analytics side, yeah. I think it'll make a, an interesting dynamic because we might be thinking about things a little different than we have over the last 20 years now that we're actually tracking how we perform in this game, right? <laughs> yeah, and how we play the game. Because I think that does take into an effect there that, you know, you're a free swinger and I'm not. I like to take the pitches. I like to wear out the pitchers. But I'll say, like, I don't know if that would necessarily, that strategy would work against another human. That's true. Because the the computer, if you wear out the pitcher, the computer will leave that pitcher in there for a while. Versus a human player, as soon as they see the shoulder starting to shrug, and the fact that the pitcher's getting tired, they're going to yank That him. is true. It, it does create some different dynamics just with that CPU versus live player. So so what was your average for runs allowed? My average for runs allowed was 2.5. 2.5. That is really impressive. So you, you pretty much doubled the average score of your opponents then, right? You said you... Yeah, yeah, just over four. Wow. Yeah, see, I was, I was at 3.5 almost 3.6 per game, whereas my scoring was 5.6. So even though we were scoring higher, they were definitely a little bit tighter games, I would yeah. say. And that might be where the computer assist comes into play, where it won't let you run away with it. That's possible. Every now and then it will. Like every now and then, I, you know, you've got some 10 to 1, 10 to zeros here. Set, but when I'm, I'm looking at your, your stat sheet, you've got some se 7 to 4. Like they're not letting you... Right. Totally feel comfortable in the ninth inning. <laughs> Definitely very little comfort <laughs> in this game. I mean, because anybody gets on base. It doesn't matter if you have pitcher or a scrawny guy at the plate or you've got Ken Griffey Jr. and Barry Bonds. Anybody in this game can hit home runs at any time. And so it definitely just forces you to play a little tense at times because you know any, any oh, anything pitch, can happen. any pitch and it's just gone. So let's bounce and continue on here. Let's look at uh, the hits for category. I think I had a high on the back end of the season of 21 hits in a game and a total of 388 hits. Where were you at, Kyle? 
I was at 319. My season high was 21, but on my back half, my season high was 17. I, I hit that a few times. Okay, okay. That's pretty solid. So what was your average per game? My average was just over 12, 12.2. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was right in there at 14.9, so just shy of 15 per game. I, I definitely felt, though, that even though my hit numbers were really high and, and I was fairly consistent, I'm looking at my stats here, and I actually, out of the entire 26-game regular season, I only had two games where I did not get into double-digit hit numbers. But if you look at my runs scored, I actually kind of felt that I left a lot on the bases. I left a lot of opportunities without getting them around the home plate. So stats are always kind of a sexy number. It's exciting, right? But but I felt like I could have gotten more rounds uh, and more points on the board based on how well I was hitting the ball. Mine very similar to that, where I, the the games that I had a lot of hits, my runs don't match that. And it's actually kind of the opposite. It's, it's strange really looking at it through that lens where I've got games where I've got nine hits and I'm, you know, and then I've got six runs. And then my games where I'm double-digit hits, I've only got three runs or four runs. So it, I have that exact same problem where I'm getting guys on base, but I'm not bringing them around. Yep, yep. And, I mean, Griffey hits a lot of double plays and things like that. A lot of balls, just as easy as it is to hit a home run, it's as easy as to hit a little dribbler to the shortstop and turns into a double play. But it, it, just seeing some of the trends for the first time, really, um, I thought was one of my favorite things about this challenge that we did just because it gave us almost this whole new view into the game, uh, even though we've been playing it for so long. Yeah, yeah, 20 years in a game, and you never really look at the breakdown of this and the, the different technical sides of it, and how efficient are you being on the base yep. path and at in the hitter box and playing defense. Yep, yep. So next up, we had hits against. How many hits we let the CPU get against us? Uh, where were you at for that? I was at an average of 9.9, .9, so just under an average of 10, 259 total. Okay. Yeah, see, you, you definitely continue to show those trends on the defensive side. These are where my numbers really got close with the computer. So, as I said, my hits for were 388, which was an average of just shy of 15. But my hits against were 348, so only a difference of 40 hits over that entire season. And the computer averaged 13.3. So there's only a 1.7 hit average difference in my games between yeah. me and the computer. Even though it, I did was able to hold them, right? Like they only scored 93 runs against me. So I outscored them by about 53. It, it just was interesting to see how tight that was. You know, my pitching prowess is not, not my strong <laughs> suit. Well, then that ends up being my strong suit. Especially when we get a little later in this, I think when we look at strikeouts, it's that's where I excelled. Like the game for me, I like to throw the junk balls. I had Mike Musino on the mound. I'm throwing that knuckle curve. I've got Jamie Moyer, you know, in the in the bullpen. I'm utilizing all the all the strengths that he has as a curveball, slow pitch type guy. So my, my strikeouts, when we get there, my strikeouts are were through the roof. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But before we got to get there, we've got uh, one more offensive category here. Technically two more, but our RBI category lines up with runs scored, just the way the game tracks them. So we probably won't spend as much time there. But let's look at the, the long ball stats here, the home runs, what everybody loves to see. 
Uh, over 26 games, Kyle, how many home runs did you have? I had exactly 26 home runs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I caught that when I was looking at your stats. So you average perfect one home run per game? A, perf- a perfect one per game. I think the game I had the most in, I hit three in my 14th game against the Rangers, which is also the game I had 20 hits. Okay. So it was my season high of, or my season high of hits against, excuse me. Like I only, I only hit, had 11 hits that game. Three of them were home runs, and that was my season single game high for home runs with three. But yeah, 26, exactly one per game. Where were you at? Well, we matched up as far as our single high on the back of the season I had was three. I had one game, it was game two, where I hit four home runs in one game, which so that was about the most I've seen. Total-wise, I hit 36 home runs across the season for an average of just shy of 1.4. Um, so not really wildly ahead of you as far as the average goes. I think I just had a couple more games where I got multiple home runs, which really, which really popped off. But I had one, two, three, four, maybe five games where I hit none at all. So, yeah, and I'm closing on eight. Okay. If I'm looking here, just a brief look through it, I've got about eight or nine games where I hit nothing. I mean, a lot of ones, <laughs> a, a, a lot of ones. It happens. I, I actually expected your hitting to be much, much more stout just based on that Orioles lineup from back then with Ripken and Brady Anderson and Harold Baines and some of them. Whereas yeah. for me, like with the Expos, I thought my issue was going to be hitting, like we said a little bit ago. So it it really was a cool shift. Interesting dynamic. And with the ALNL dynamic, where you would assume with the American League, with the DH, that my hitting would be higher versus you in the NL, where your pitchers hit. But it just totally flipped the script. Well, and honestly, I I didn't keep track of exactly how many home runs my pitchers hit. But I know at the beginning, when we were at the 10-game mark, I was pretty confident that about half of my home runs had been hit by pitchers both starting and on my bench. Like, the Expos just have hitters on the rotation. But, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I would have thought, man, like, and that was a thought that went through my head. Like, I'm the NL team here. That's a different dynamic. I'm one hitter less. But, you know, my guys ended up just pulling through. I know you had one relief pitcher who you you said in Chapter 4 you would try to get him into the game. Oh, yeah. Because he, he was so good at hitting, and he had so many home runs on the season. You're like, this is the relief pitcher I want to yeah. use because when he gets to the plate, I don't have to pinch yep, hit him. It was Donaghy. Um, he actually had the stance just like Ken Griffey Jr. does in the game. And I mean, uh, he, I think I had the high elbow. Yeah, I think he had four or five home runs across the season as a middle relief pitcher. <laughs> Bullpen guy. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe he's converted. Maybe he was a field player that converted to being a pitcher. That's possible. That's why he's so good at That's hitting. possible. He wasn't the best when it came to pitching. He actually had a high ERA but he was just so valuable in the lineup. So I would always bring him in first for at least a couple innings there, you know, six, seven, eight, depending on how things were going. But talking about pitchers, let's look at our our last stack category here for the regular season. You alluded to it before. You dominated me entirely in this category, uh, and that was strikeouts. Tell us about uh, what your strikeout numbers look like. I had 49 strikeouts on the season, an average of 1.88, so just under two strikeouts per game. In two separate games, both one on the front half and one on the back half, I had five strikeouts in one game. That's pretty impressive. And I think, because I can see it here, since we kept the stats from your first run, you actually had a high in your first run of six strikeouts in a game. 
So I'm going to give you credit for that, given everything you went through. But either way, <laughs> I didn't even come close. I don't think I had a single game. In fact, I'm looking at it. I did not have a single game where I had more than two strikeouts. And I ended up a 26-game season with 16 strikeouts, <laughs> otherwise known as an average of .6. So less than one strikeout per game by far is where I was at. I try to pitch guys inside. I try to do some things, but clearly I do not have the control over that ball the way you do. And I throw a lot of junk. I'll, I'll admit, like, if you watch the video of my Game 11 playthrough against the Royals, it gets full on. You can see I throw a lot of junk, and I fully utilize pitching guys outside, out of the zone, and getting them to swing at it. So I, I utilize that Mike Mussina knuckle curve. I get it out of, I get it out of the zone. I get guys swinging. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out if I ever have to play you, knowing that I do. You, you'll know that I do that, so I don't know if it'll work the same. I know. I feel like none of our future Griffith games will ever be the same now that we have such analytics on each other. You know, it's like the old adage in football, like a new guy can come in and he can blow people away, right? But then as soon as the NFL gets tape on him <laughs> and can study him, it's like the whole thing changes. I feel like we're going right. to have the same exact situation here. So it, it was a good season. I definitely had our own issues. Um, I did get through the the full season and finished up as the top team in baseball at 20 and six. That did put me into the playoffs. Um, I had to play two series, so essentially the first was the NLCS since I didn't have to play a wild card game. I played the Braves in that series, and I could see all along the season. I could see that on the American League side. The Orioles were absolutely dominant. They, I think they didn't lose a game yeah. until game like 12 or 13. So I was keeping my eye on them. And, of course, Kyle was the Orioles on his season. So it was an interesting dynamic, too, because I'm, like, yeah. watching, you know, the, the CPU likely be my opponent at the end of the season, just like it would have been with Kyle. So when we got to the playoffs and I saw who I was going to have to play in the NLCS with the Braves, and I'm still seeing the Orioles on the other side – I was actually much more worried about getting through the NLCS because the Braves in this game are stacked. Oh, yeah, they, they have a full roster of both pitchers and hitters. They were winning championships at that time in the early 90s. So you had Greg Maddox, crime dog Fred McGriff, Kenny Lofton yeah. is the leadoff hitter on that team. You got a young David Justice in right field. Deion Sanders is on the bench, so they love to bring him yeah. in to pinch hit because he's so fast. And they always Dion Neon, yeah, Neon Dion, and they always do him uh, for a pitcher because the computer will only pinch hit for a pitcher. So you would end up having these yeah. situations where you're facing Neon Dion with a ten speed, and then Kenny Lofton with a ten speed, and so yeah, and right behind him it comes Fred McGriff to clean him up. So it was really I was much more worried about the NLCS and them than I was the Orioles, and maybe some of that was because I'd seen some of the stats. Maybe I was thinking, oh, the Orioles aren't as good a hitting team. Or whatever, you know, maybe there oh, yeah. was some, some bias there based on what you were finding Thinking out. based on how I yeah. was playing the game. Yeah, yeah no way, no way. Yeah. Well, you got Tom Gladden, Steve Avery, John Smoltz. Oh, like, yeah. that's a That's a tough lineup to get through as far as the Atlanta yeah. Braves in the early 90s. They might be the most complete team in the entire game, honestly, between, between having multiple legit pitchers and a solid offensive uh, squad. But ultimately... I beat them four to one, you know, I played the first yeah. one. I, it was kind of funny. We recorded it. It's on YouTube game one. I actually wasn't sure if these were going to be sudden death series since we did the shortened season or if they were going to be full 
seven game series. So I actually recorded the first game thinking like, oh my God, this is all the stress is right here. It's one and done. <laughs> and then when I beat it, it ended up saying, you know, you're just leading the series one nothing. But I ended up pretty much stomping them out four to one. If I look at the stats here that I've got for it, pretty much never looked back. I gave up game two big. That was their high pretty much for the whole postseason as far as runs allowed. But the Braves outscored yeah. me twelve to three in game two. Probably my most embarrassing defeat of the whole <laughs> retro sports league the challenge. Whole, <laughs> the whole campaign, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You bounce back in game three here. I see you bounce back and won twelve to five in that game three. Yeah, it was almost like a, a mirror mirror opposite, right? Uh between games two and three. And then I pretty much shut them down there in games four and five, six to two, six to nothing. Had some of my biggest hits as well totals. I had 25 hits in game three, but I also gave up 26 in game two. So for all the consistency through the regular season, <laughs> right, some of it goes out the window in the playoffs. And, and that kind of imitates real life too sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to ask if you felt like the game stepped it up in the playoffs, if it got harder at all. I mean, I didn't really think that was the case when I played the Braves, despite how worried I was, because I pretty much wrecked them the rest of the way through. But when I got to the World Series against the Orioles, I was in for a rude awakening, and there I <laughs> felt like it absolutely got got harder. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna say I know. Well, I'll let you get into it here. I I know that you got the early win, and we're feeling good in that World Series against the Orioles, but then hit a brick wall. Oh my God! Yeah. So. So the World Series in Griffey follows the classic, you know, two-game, three-game, two-game format where as the home team you get two games home, then you're away for three and you come back. So, yeah, I won the first game, feeling good, no sweat, getting got past Mike Messina, you know, as the opening uh, starter. And then, and then I proceed to legitimately lose the next three. <laughs> and in cl in close games too. Very close games. Uh game 2 was legitimately a 15 inning game of Griffey that was 0-0 until the top of inning 15 when Harold Baines came in as a pinch hitter and smacked a three-run home run and I lost 3-0. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's normally the designated hitter yep. on you know in the AL side. So it's good to say they used him in a pinch hitting role. Oh yeah. Oh, he always he's the number one guy that Baltimore apparently will use as a pinch hitter when uh, when they have to. You know. So then game games three and four were pretty close. I lost three nothing in game three and four three in game four. So I was I was absolutely wrecked at this point. I was very worried. I felt like everything was on my shoulders with our, our challenge here, <laughs> just given how everything worked out with you. I was like, I've really got to vindicate us here. I've got to get through all this and, and go out with a bang. Like I can't pretty much borderline get you know, swept by the computer. Here. Yeah. Prove that with the game we've been playing for 20 years, we are actually exactly, good at. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I was really stressed and, and I've never, I've never been this stressed playing any, Ken Griffey Jr. video game ever, let alone something like this on the line with the World Series. But it's all on the line. I go into game five, and we're going into the ninth inning, and it's 0-0 again. And it's just <laughs> like, all right, now we're going into the most 
legit of sudden deaths because at this point in game five, the Orioles are still the home team. So yeah. every time Camden Yards. Yeah, so at that point I knew every bottom of the inning was one hit away from me losing and this whole thing being in the trash. So it's zero zero going into the top of the ninth and I hit a solo home run and I win game five one nothing. So I'm like, all right, I got life. It's not over yet. <laughs> Go to game six and that game goes thirteen innings, tied two two. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that game six went extras. Yes, there was, yeah, there was a second one that went extras. And so it's 2-2 two, two through 13. And now this is a home game for me because I had home field advantage. And in the bottom of the 13th, I hit a three-run shot and win 5-2. So I'm like, all right, we're back. Feeling good. We're feeling good. The series now is tied up 3-3. Three, three. It's what you want in sports, right? It, it sucks, yeah. and it's a lot of tension. Went through it with the Nats in real life just a few months ago as a fan. Yeah. And now here I am trying to bring it all home with the World Series win here and this comeback. So Game 7, I did record it. It'll be released to YouTube in the next couple of days. Definitely check it out. It might be released by the time we release uh, Chapter 9 here. I go down one nothing super early and was like, oh, God, here it goes, right? Like, yeah. I think it was like the second or third inning. It's one nothing. I'm I am absolutely struggling to hit the ball. It's the third yeah. time I'm facing Mike Mussina because they bring him See up, <laughs> and I I'm just doing nothing. It's just dribblers and pop ups and all that jazz that happens with Griffey. And there's no worse feeling that in Griffey than that when you need a run, you need a hit, you need something to get your offense going, and every swing is just a dribbler or a quick yeah. out, like a fly ball, and there's nothing you can do, and the innings are just rolling over one right after another in quick fashion. Oh, yeah. You're like, this this game's going to get away from Yeah, me. to put it into context, I think the recording, I noticed the recording was just over 18 minutes, and that even has menu navigation, so, so the game itself was actually less than 18 minutes, which was way fast for a Griffey game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Quick pace. That's a super yeah, quick pace. Yeah, so it was all kind of coming in on me. But then the sixth inning hits. I got my only flurry of offense. I score four, including a big home run, and was able to hold the O's for the rest of the game and get that big comeback. I was super ecstatic. I could not cannot believe that I pulled it off and got it recorded. So definitely, definitely go out and check it out. The stats I felt like for the whole postseason – we're pretty consistent with what I had, you know, just to kind of go through the quick totals here. I had 53 runs scored, 35 runs allowed, 164 hits in 12 games of the yeah. playoffs, but I gave up 138. 20 home runs in the playoffs, so I kept that 20 going. 20 home, yeah. Keeping it rolling. And, hey, 13 strikeouts in 12 games. So There I, it is. There I it improved is. a little bit. Definitely still didn't even match your numbers with my postseason and regular season for strikeouts, <laughs> but I did pick it up a little bit. And my first baseman, Morrissey, he really came through in the clutch because some of my big hitters from the season kind of struggled in the postseason. And then my guys yeah. that, that weren't as hot in the regular season came alive. But my first baseman, Morrissey, he came out with four home runs in the World Series and was absolutely the MVP. So it, it wrapped up pretty well. Yeah, you sent me that text message. I, I saw the screen. 
the Expos win the World Series. You sent me that text, and, and I immediately responded. I was like, tell me you're popping bottles of champagne and spraying it all over your living room. <laughs> like, put put the tarp down, the ski goggles on, and going crazy, man, winning the World Series. That's the big time. Yeah, I don't think my wife would have been very happy about that, but I, I definitely <laughs> felt like I should have been more prepared to do something along those lines. It would have been hilarious. So it was super cool. I I would I got to see a screen in Griffey that I've never seen before. Trying to think back on it, maybe when we were super little kids, we did we get through a season, but I don't really believe that I had ever gotten through a season and playoffs and won the World Series in Ken Griffey Jr. Presents Major League Baseball. So getting to see this fresh screen after 20-plus years of playing that says, congratulations, you've won the World Series, it's got Griffey there, that was super big. And then getting to see the credits roll uh, we found out something that we never knew about in this game as well. Yeah, well, one of the big things I was going to ask about the playoffs is like, was there a music change or a tension change? Because the music is such an integral part of the game uh, as far as like pacing and keeping you going and keeping you playing. But I didn't know we talked about it. Like there, there was a bit of a switch up there to the theme of the game. Yeah, it wasn't during the, the playoff games themselves. All of that was standard with the Griffey theme. But at the end, when the credits rolled, there was a different song essentially a second theme song that I'd never heard before attached to Griffey. Not something I even learned outside of the game itself. It was a little bit slower pacing, a little bit more kind of rock, even though it is very synthesized like the the current one is. But I'd never heard it. So it was just kind of a surreal moment, just, you know, all this time later, coming off the hype of winning this big comeback in the World Series and then getting rewarded with essentially kind of what I would call probably some Easter eggs in the game that we just never knew of. Yeah, it was definitely pretty sweet. Went from the most stressful stuff that I've ever done in Griffey to the most hype and excitement I've had playing it in a long time. So a lot of emotions there. Uh, all in all, I think it was a pretty decent uh, wrap up to our first ever Retro Sports League challenge. Well, despite all the turmoil and my season ending in complete heartbreak fashion, it was exciting to see Chris's season end in a success winning that World Series and doing his Washington Nationals slash Montreal Expos proud. Be on the lookout later in the year as we still plan to organize our Geek Catch-Up Retro Sports League Challenge Showdown where Chris and I will square off with our respective teams in the World Series. Also, we'd love to hear from you about possible games to play in the second season of the Retro Sports League Challenge. Hit us up on social media with your favorite old-school sports video games. Time for the top five XFL nicknames that aren't Rod, he hate me smart. Five. Eric, Erup, Eric. Four. Daryl, Mantis, Hobbs. Three. Charles, Chronic, Y2K1, Jordan. Two. Otis, Hit Squad, Floyd. One. Jamal, Death Blow, Dunk. On January 25th, 2018, Vince McMahon announced the new incarnation of the XFL, the Extreme Football League. Owned and operated through the parent company of Alpha Entertainment, which of course is owned by McMahon himself, this American Football League would be a brand new fan-first league that reimagines the game of football. The league itself does have many similarities to the original XFL that McMahon launched in 2001, including the name, number of teams, season, and ownership structure. However, the key differences this time around is there are no direct connections to the WWE, 
and the rule changes that they have put in place are much more logical than gimmick-based. The new league kicked off its 10-week season on February 8, 2020, and the inaugural game saw the D.C. Defenders defeating the Seattle Dragons 31-19 at Audi Field in Washington, D.C. Chris and I were in attendance for this historic first game, and I have to admit, I was a little skeptical given how the first XFL went 20 years ago, but all in all, I had a pretty good time. Totally agree, and of course, you know, when the first experience that we all had, really the only thing we could set real expectations on for the XFL was <laughs> the ridiculousness of, you know, 2001 XFL. I think I think everybody probably felt the same way, right? Like, it feels like it's going to be a little bit more legit, feels like it's going to be done a little bit more uh, standard, but it's Vince McMahon. It's WWE yeah. related, you know, what are they going to do to surprise us? And so we decided to go, you know, we figured if it, if there's ever a time to go right, it's day one. New football leagues tend to struggle, so go catch them early if you want to see them and be a part of it. But all in all, when we got there, I was, I was much more blown away than I expected. There were tons and tons of fans there. Yeah, oh yeah, it was close to, well, reported attendance of that first game was just over 17,000, I believe it was 17,193 in a 20,000-seat stadium of Audi Field. So it was a packed house. Not a sellout, but a packed house. I mean, I I don't know how you don't really consider that a sellout for a brand-new league, brand-new team, really. I mean, technically it wasn't, but... It, I, there was probably about 10,000 more people there than I expected there to be, if I'm just being completely candid. I thought so, too. I kept tracking in the weeks prior to the game. Like, I was looking at Ticketmaster and StubHub and a few other areas trying to see what tickets looked like and if there were still seats available because I was thinking, we're going to go and the stadium's going to be empty. Yep. It's just going to be like salt and pepper throughout the stadium. We're going to be the only ones there. I actually had the thought in my head that, we would be able to move down a few rows right. from where we got our seats. We didn't get bad seats. We got about middle uh, middle section and midfield just off. I th- I'd say we were about like the 30-yard line. Yeah, somewhere in there. And then about halfway down, maybe 15 rows up, not that bad, 12 rows up. So I was thinking if this place is empty, we're going to move about the stadium and go wherever we want and sit wherever we want. If we want to go down to the field, we can. But it ended up being pretty crowded. Like, I think our row in our section was was packed. Yeah, for sure. And I guess some of it probably should have been expected because, you know, the WWE, Vince McMahon, wrestling in general, has diehard fans. And by looking at the people in the crowd, right, just people watching as we were moving through, I feel like I would probably estimate that at least 50% of the fans there were, were there because they were wrestling fans. We saw you know, a lot of wrestling attire. I was wearing a Finn Balor shirt just because the colors matched, you know. But on the flip side, there was a surprisingly amount of sports fans, you know, people wearing Capitals jerseys, Redskins jerseys, way more than I expected were people wearing Defenders gear. I mean, people were coming into the game covered head to toe in Defenders gear. The team shops were absolutely packed. I, I that blew me sold away. Sold out. Yeah, pretty much sold out of gear. We went to the team store around halftime and it was slim picking. Yeah. Like they sold that place out. Yeah. So the I mean the hype was high, the swag was high, you know, it was really really impressive, but I I felt like it was a good mix between people that probably wanted to support Vince 
and people that legitimately wanted good, more good football and more good sports in the D.C. area and probably in the other cities as well. Well, I'd heard a few people make comments given that, like, I, I to quote somebody, I actually heard someone behind us say, it just feels nice to support a team in D.C. that doesn't have any baggage. Ooh. Which made me think, you know, and that's a bit of a knock on the Redskins, on the Washington Redskins in the NFL, but it's this idea that, yeah, the D.C. has a strong sports base, and they were eager to root for a team like this yeah. that doesn't have a checkered past or an owner that they don't like or have made moves that they don't agree with, that it's just this is a brand-new team and a brand-new league. They haven't done anything stupid yet, and I'm just going to go, and I'm going to give them my unconditional support. Yeah, that is a good point. I know we did see the signs that some people had put up on the opposite side of the stadium that you know said, Hail to the Defenders, which is, <laughs> which is sacrilege in D.C. because Hail to the Redskins is their motto. And then there was even another one right next to it that was, you know, calling for Dan Snyder to sell the Redskins because, you know, D.C. has a new football team now. And so there was, I mean, the Redskins are a diehard fan base. So to really see people even joking along those lines, you know, is kind of telling for this essentially minor league football team at this point, you know, that just started. But all in all, the hype, the crowd, the excitement, the cheering, it made it for a much better uh, experience all around and the and the on-field product wasn't that bad either no it was good it was good you know cardell jones starting quarterback for the dc defenders former ohio state product uh came out strong completed that first pass in xfl history the crowd went crowd went wild for it there was a lot of mvp chance for him and it was a it was a smart crowd it was a lot of people i thought maybe with the people would come across this and it's oh it's the xfl it could be a little gimmicky they're just let's just go and and watch the show right. and watch how crazy this is. But no, it was a smart sports, you know, educated crowd that knew when to cheer, knew when to get into it, and got excited behind their team. The the overall vibe was very legit for a football game. Yeah, for sure. And I do think there were some people there that were probably just like, I'm gonna go watch this shit show, thinking entirely about the original incarnation, right? Like there was actually a guy two seats over from me, right next to Barry who was by himself and he actually I think it said at one point like I had nothing else to do so I just wanted to come see what was going to happen and <laughs> yeah and then the more we got to talking you know the more he was like all right you know this is I, you know hearing him at times like this is pretty decent like we saw some big plays a blocked punt 55 yard field goal the pick six stands out where the guy you know the defenders cornerback uh, grabbed it and ran like 80 yards for the touchdown so when you get some big on on field moments like that it really kind of makes up for any other lesser parts you know it wasn't perfect on field and I felt like the pace was a little slower right the athleticism's probably a yeah. touch below the top tier of the NFL right but you had like you mentioned Cardell Jones won a national championship at Ohio State you had Eli Rogers on uh, the defenders team playing running back wide receiver he played for the Steelers a bunch Mm-hmm. There wasn't too many really big names on the Seattle team that we saw, but I know Landry Jones is on the Dallas team. He was starting quarterback for the Steelers when Big Ben went down. So you do have some familiar names is probably the way to put it right. Familiar names from college and NFL that are peppered through the league. They they went out and they got real guys. They didn't just get like hacks or people that couldn't make it in the NFL and dropped down the XFL or people that were trying to get their shot. They went out and got legitimate 
either college prospects that maybe were late draft picks and wanted to make up a switch or were in the CFL at some point. I don't know exactly all their stories, but it did seem like it was a legitimate project. And I know we're going to come back to that legitimate word, but it that's what it felt like. It, it didn't feel, while the, there were some drops and a few hiccups here and there, The I didn't feel like I was watching a high school game. And I didn't feel like, maybe the last time we watched XFL, you look at it and you're like, okay, Clemson could probably beat that team. Right. And it, it didn't feel that way, at least for me. It, it didn't feel that way. No, I mean, it, it seemed pretty on par with, a lot of college football. I mean, I do think that probably the top tier teams and got like a Clemson or a, or a Bama or whatever would probably be very, very uh, able to take out some of these teams just because it'd be competitive. It'd be very competitive. Yeah. But like you said, there was, there was a decent amount of talent out there. It, it felt better on field than the American football league or the associate of American football league, the AAF, whatever that was that came out, <laughs> whatever that was last year, <laughs> last year. But as long as they can keep that going and keep that on field product fairly decent, then they should be able to, to do all right. You know, speaking of the AAF, we did see right after we finished that, our game that they had tweeted that day one of the XFL sold more tickets than the entire season. Granted, it only lasted like four weeks or whatever, but the entire <laughs> season of the AAF. So pretty much everything, at least on week one, right? I think some of the other games are going to be starting here in a little bit as we're recording this. But for week one, pretty successful. I thought so. It you know makes you happy going forward that confidence that the league is not going to do what the AAF did last year where it folded after four games, that they're at least going to make it through their 10-week regular season. They're going to get into their two-week postseason the semifinals they're going to have a champion this year we're going to see an xfl champion crowned it's not just going to fold in on itself and that makes it more positive a good vibe i did see something that was interesting to me that i can't confirm it but rumors are that the ticket prices have already increased slightly from week one to week two because of the success of week one that makes sense you know hopefully it wasn't too drastic but you know that's actually a good sign in a lot of ways whether it's the face value of the tickets going up because they believe their product is more valuable or probably really what you would want to see is the secondary market where the fans are driving the ticket prices up because they believe in it. And so that's a good plus. I mean, we knew going into it that one of the big differences between this league and the AAF at the time was that Vince McMahon, he sold a bunch of WWE stock. He grabbed like 150 or $200 million and then started – this company again for XFL. So he's got a lot more money from the get-go, I think, backing this league than what the AAF did at the time when they started. Plus, Vince just signed a deal with Fox for wrestling, and and that's clearly bled over into XFL. These games are being broadcasted on the ABC network, Fox, and ESPN. Those are big boy networks that really go a long way in making sure that your league is successful because people got to be able to put eyeballs to it, right? And yeah. and I remember that when the AAF folded, it was like the first week the game was on CBS. It was really easy to find. The second week, it was like one game was CBS, and then another game might have been like TNT West or something. And then the third game was on some random website streaming service nobody had heard of. You know, So it made it very difficult to even – watch the game if you wanted to yeah whereas this seems to be very front and center 
and you've got this huge investment from from the McMahon family and a pretty decent investment from what I would say the broadcasting networks. And it also helps when you bring in Fox, ABC, ESPN, like that, that the television presentation of it all is going to be right. It's going to be done right, not gimmicky, not a big hoax, that the, it's going to be presented as a legitimate sport, real football, and it's not just some, oh, we're making up some crazy rules and we're throwing our cheerleaders in skimpy outfits. Yep. No, this is, as their tagline says, for the love of football, yeah, and and it's done right. Yeah, absolutely. And I did get to catch a little bit of the uh, late game Sunday, so I got to see from the TV aspect as well as you know what we got to see live, and it did feel pretty good. You you can tell they've got to iron out some things, right? You know, new crews working together from the teams to the refs to the commentators and the people in the st- in the stadiums doing things. Definitely some stuff to iron out, but. Nothing that you wouldn't really expect uh, out of any new broadcast company or sports league. So, you know, I gave them a pass on most of the the little hiccups that we saw, whether on TV or in the stadium. And that's fine, especially with a league like this. They're not going to put Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on the XFL. They're going to use maybe their B-list, C-list commentators and give them an opportunity to commentate on football. I, I think of like the Little League World Series. They do that a lot. True where they they use some guys that don't necessarily get to commentate baseball and they give them the opportunity to do play-by-play and color commentary on baseball. And I would think that that's what these companies are doing with the XFL. You've got a handful of commentary play-by-play people that want to get into doing football, and this is a great opportunity for them to get a shake at it. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Troy Aikman, when I was watching the Dallas Renegades game, though, he was on the sidelines. Oh, wow. He gave a little sideline interview, so... You know, he was uh, he was supporting the XFL. Really, probably one of the big things we should talk about, uh, at least touch on here with the XFL, is that there are a few rule changes compared to the NFL mm-hmm. or college. And a lot of it was done, you know, from the standpoint of player safety. But also when, and they actually proved this to, to be true, is they promoted some changes to make sure that the games were more streamlined and quicker paced. And that was one thing I was really kind of watching as we went through the game. You know, the average NFL game, I'd say on the short end is three hours, 45 minutes, and on the long end is four and a half hours, right? You know, most of them are right around four hours. Yeah, start around one, end around 4.30. Right. And and if there's overtime, whatever, they go longer. And we started at two o'clock, and we were, the game was done right at five. Yeah. And personally, I don't know what you thought, but... They probably could have gotten it done quicker, but there were a few little hiccups on field where, you know, the refs were trying to figure out some spots of the ball. And I remember there was one moment towards the end zone at the end of the game where it felt like there was like 10 plays over, you know, 10 minutes, and they just kept changing the ball and doing this stuff and replay. So once again, right, a little bit of hiccup to iron out. A little bit of hiccup. But, I mean, they could have got us out of there in a cool, you know, two and a half hours almost feeling like you're watching a European football match. It's true. It's very true that the overall pace of the game, and you can't control those things. And the day one, week one, where you're everybody's learning, you're gonna have those hiccups. But I'd say once we get into week six, seven, eight, those are gonna be gone. The refs are gonna be very familiar with the speed of the play, how to analyze things. I know that they have a replay system in place for basically everything, which is a bit different than the NFL where 
it's scores and challenges versus the XFL. There's always somebody in the main ref's ear telling them what to do. So that's going to be an adjustment period. But once they get the ball rolling, I'd agree that it's going to be a two and a half hour product, which is awesome because that's what you want. And it's one of the things that I like the most about soccer. Like I watch a lot of soccer that it's wham, bam, two hours. It's a, it's a 90 minute game with a 15 minute halftime. It doesn't eat up your whole day and you can get in, get out and get other things done versus a Sunday NFL football. That's your whole day. That's your whole afternoon. You're not going to do anything else. And for a lot of people, they don't want to do anything else, but for other people that want to be more casual with it, this two hour, three hour time span that you can get in, get out is really nice. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. And a lot of that we, like we mentioned was from some of these rule changes. And I thought that they did some interesting stuff, seeing it in person, helped make it more understandable than just you know hearing about what they're promoting going into the league but it also felt really weird after watching regular football for you know 30 years or I guess I should say NFL football for 30 years we saw with differences on the kickoffs differences on the extra points um, they have a more college style overtime setup and then there were a lot more fourth down plays than I think I've ever seen in a game based on, I think, some of their, their changes on where you are on the field, and they really promoted you actually going forward versus punting in every situation. So what did you think about some of the rule changes? Uh, I like the punt change, and I know that that's why it almost seemed awkward, but I they've said that statistics show that you actually should go for it on fourth down more than punting because the chances of getting that fourth down conversion are pretty high when you actually go for it. So they've changed that punt rule that if a ball goes out of bounds on a punt, that there's a huge penalty for it. So I I really enjoyed that rule. The kickoff was the one that was the most jarring, I think, for For me, because you see a touchdown, and then we've been so conditioned to see this standard NFL-style kickoff. So when the ball goes to be kicked off and everyone's already down on one side of the field just kind of waiting, it, it made it feel a little awkward. But then you realize, oh, no. Like that that's what it's supposed to do. I thought we'd see more big returns because Agreed. of that style where everyone is always like everyone but the kicker is lined up on the receiving end. I think they were five to ten yards away from each yep. other. I thought that would make it easier to break through the line and get a big return. But it ended up not being the case. A lot of people got halted right at the line. It's funny you say that because I know we were on opposite ends of the stands as far as our group of five of us, you know, so we didn't get to really talk a whole lot during the game. Me and Barry were talking more. Me and Alex were talking. And that was the first thing that after the very first kickoff, the first thing I said to Barry was I could see a lot more big returns and touchdowns because I started thinking about, you know, if you've got all 10 blockers for both teams lined up right across from each other, I started thinking about like, well, could you start doing plays and like have people block very specifically to try and open up these holes and, and kind of create a new dynamic? I know there's plays on kickoffs in the NFL too. Like they can do double reverses and there's some stuff, right? But it's, but just the different dynamic. And then, like you said, it really just ultimately worked out to a very, you know, normal five to 10 yard return. It didn't feel like you were, even though you were looking at a different setup, it didn't feel like anything had changed once that ball got kicked, really. And the whole point was for player safety because so many of the big injuries in football happen during the kickoffs when you've got 10 dudes that run four five forties just sprinting down the field <laughs> looking to Goldberg spear 
the crap out of this, you know, dude that's holding the football. And so I think that they did a good job at eliminating that without really making you lose anything from the kickoff. It didn't take away from the game. Uh, as far as the extra point, that was a little interesting. What shocked me the most was that nobody went for three. Yeah, so in the extra point situation with XFL, you can't kick a, an extra point like you do in NFL or college. You have a choice, right? So you can go for one point from the two-yard line, I think two points from the five-yard line, and then three points from the 10-yard line after scoring a touchdown. And and I really expected more mix-ups in, in our game, at least, the Seattle versus Washington game. Nobody went for anything other than, than the one point. And some of that was probably because the game was close and it was kind of dictated that way, right? But I will say when I got home and I caught the Renegades versus Battlehawks game, they actually had a lot more variety. I think the majority were still one-point attempts, but I definitely saw two points in there. I'm trying to think if I saw three. But either way, I was like, hey, I finally get to see a a non-one-point play here. So I think that'll really come more into effect over the season when the games become more important for playoff. And if you really think about the times, if you're down by like 10 points and you can get this touchdown and then grab an extra three and now it's a one-point game, like that really could create some cool dynamics from a from a fan perspective, like the tension that could happen, these yeah. big comeback swings, et cetera, et cetera. No lead is safe. No lead is safe. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. So – it felt like they were on the right track. We'll have to see if they adjust anything, you know, through the season or in the off season, just because they're trying some of these things out too, right? Sure. But but Oliver Luck seems to be very, very good football mind. Um, we actually saw him and Shane O'Mac. Shane McMahon was in the building. Yeah. There was here comes the money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was no pomp and circumstance. Like Shane didn't cut a promo to open the game or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I was I was probably the one in the whole group actually expecting something to be done with a wrestler in the area or Shane once we saw him. But they kept it all very even keel and very about the football. And and it was a smart move. It worked. I think so. I we talked about it. We had to ride the metro down. We talked about it in the whole metro. We're like, who are we gonna see? What superstars in the area? Who lives in the area? Where was SmackDown last night? Somebody's got to be here. And it was very clean cut. It was about the football, and that's one of the things that Vince McMahon said he wanted. That there is no direct connection to the WWE. It's owned by this Alpha Entertainment versus the old XFL had this direct connection to the WWE. I think Goldberg was at one of the games. The Rock was, of course, at one of the games back in 2001. But this time, it was nope. It was all about football. Yes, Jonah Mack was there, probably supporting the league yep. as a McMahon, but he did not cut a promo. You know, there, there, was no, there was no visible signs of any relationship to the fact that Vince McMahon also owns WWE. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only signs you would have seen were in the fans, you know. Yeah, with the we did the fatheads. We did see a giant Vince McMahon fathead, uh, which was pretty funny. That was pretty funny. You know, it, it was a good day all in all. The weather was great. It was a little cold, but I know the pictures of the stadium that we got um, that are all available on our Facebook page were were absolutely gorgeous. Definitely shout out honorable mention to Audi Field. I mean, I was blown away. Yeah. It's a fairly new stadium for the DC United. Built just in the last, what, two or three years, and it was top-notch. Not a bad seat in the house, it looked like. The concessions being field level, and there were suites field level. Like I was very, 
impressed and it made me very excited. Hopefully, David Tepper, if you're listening, that's what we'll get here in Charlotte <laughs> for the new Charlotte MLS team that is coming. But I have to say, I think we have to share this story, you know, because the fans were very were very engaged the whole time. We saw people that were in full, I guess, what they invented as defenders cosplay night gear and in the whole nine yards it was definitely good stuff and throughout the entire crowd but in front of us in our in our section there was a younger kid probably in his what early to mid 20s something like i would that. say early 20s, early 20s yeah. and he was pretty much in like full shane falco cosplay i mean he was wearing football pads with a yeah. defender's jersey over him football pants uh eye black you know sandy blonde hair and he had an original XFL football, which is similar to the current one, except for it was it was all black with some red banding. So it's got a unique look. And the new one is more of a traditional brown with some similar banding. But it started out all good right early in the game. He was kind of soft tossing the football around a little bit. He's posing, trying to get on camera, doing his football, you know, quarterback shuffle, moving the shoulders, you know, and all that. And it was all good. Everybody was happy. And fast forward a couple hours to the end of the game. A couple drinks later. Uh, more than a couple, I would I would bet, based <laughs> on his demeanor. But yes, lots of alcohol involved. And the game was kind of struggling to finish up there. We were, you know, towards the end when they had that debacle, the last two minutes were, were slower. And people were probably starting to get a little bored because they knew we were about to get let out, right? And this yeah. kid decides that he's going to audition for a spot on the field by literally just indiscriminately hurling this football as hard as he can <laughs> around the, the stands. He was throwing seeds. Oh, my God. He, he was putting some sauce on the on the ball oh, yeah. when he was throwing it to people. Oh, yeah. And some of them saw it and caught it. There was others that got their hands up last minute. I saw one guy get smacked across the shoulder. And you could feel the tension building in our section. You know, hundreds of people there. Because there was kids. There was older people. You know, guys like you and I could take a football to the face and probably be okay. But, you know, eight-year-old kid or something. And this guy was not giving any crap. He was just hurling them. He probably couldn't even see who he was throwing it at. He was so drunk. At one point, I actually – I was wearing gloves because it was a little chilly and we were in the shade. I actually took my gloves off because then I turned to our buddy Mike next to me and I said, if that ball comes anywhere near me – I'm catching it because I'm not going to take the risk of someone else trying to catch it, missing it, and it hitting me in the face. Yep. So I took I took my gloves off so I could have my bare hands out to get some grip. I'm like, I'm catching that damn thing because I'm not taking a football in the face at 5 o'clock on a Saturday right. afternoon. With an hour metro ride back home. With an hour like metro. Bleeding yes, out the not nose. happening. <laughs> not happening. I'm going to catch that sucker. Well, and what was funny was, so as it kept happening, they, the guy didn't throw the ball directly at us, but... There were groups right around us that everybody started being like, because people kept throwing the ball back to him as he was Which doing. Which was amazing, it, right? Yeah, that was amazing that they everyone was throwing it on a dime, yeah, just straight. And back I don't to understand him. how that was working. And and every and there was other people that were like, "Give her the football." You know, we weren't far from the back of the stadium. You could have thrown the ball right out the back of the stadium. He never would have saw it yeah. again. You know, yeah. there were Audi Field's not very big. Uh, DC United has built a very close, compact stadium for their fans which as a dc united fan i'm thrilled about but yeah you could throw it out the back of the stadium and then you could very easily get it onto the field if you had right and the guy right behind me who probably in his 20s 30s whatever younger guy 
he kept being the one that kept saying, throw it on the field. He kept screaming, throw it on the field. So after, you know, four or five tosses of this ball going around, the drunk kid, Shane Falco, throws it up onto the top of the bleachers, hits somebody, and the ball bounces back, and the guy directly behind me catches it. And I am not lying when I, I totally instigated this, but since he was the guy <laughs> that kept screaming, throw it on the field, as soon as he caught the ball, I locked eyes with him and pointed at him as like, you have to throw it on the field, man. And that guy <laughs> did not hesitate at all. He just launches back the arm, chucks it as hard as he can onto the field. I'll never forget this because there was a security guy guy down there, and Oliver Luck, the commissioner of the league, is down there. And the security guy literally like arches his head and ran, like watches this ball <laughs> slow-mo go over his head out of the stands and lands on like the 25-yard line of the field. The, yeah. the teams were on the other end of the field, and the refs blew the game dead. And yeah. Oliver Luck... Oh, the crowd started booing. Oh, yeah, the crowd Everyone started, started booing. booing. The, Oliver Luck goes out and grabs the football off the field and is like pointing at the fans like, WTF, like, where'd you get this yeah. old ball? You know, the whole nine yards. And the best part about it was, was that the whole row behind us where this guy who threw the ball was standing just left. Like, everybody yeah. but him leaves there's like eight empty yeah. seats that were packed and then the guy that threw it, he's like down the left side a little bit so we're all standing there pretty much looking like we were the ones that did it because there was nobody behind us right oh his friends were like writings on the wall <laughs> we're going to stadium jail let's get out of here yeah so the crowd's going nuts oliver luck who is andrew luck's dad if you don't know uh who just retired from the nfl he is holding the ball and then naturally you know, the, the hundreds of fans there, we just start chanting, throw, throw it, it back. back. <laughs> throw it back. Throw it back. He thought about it for a second. He sat there, and it was like he was with another guy, and he chatted him up for a second, like, well, what should I do? Yeah. Should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I just hold on to the ball? Well, I think he what he was doing, because he did ultimately throw it back, which was cool. Yeah. But I think what he was doing, because it was so close to the end of the game, was he was just waiting for the game to actually finish. So that way, mm. I, you know, we wouldn't throw it back on the field again. You yeah, know? we're just going to get in a pitch and catch situation <laughs> with Oliver Luck. <laughs> so it, it was definitely – and then when he threw it back, you know, the game was over. The, the kid playing cosplay that was drunk out of his mind got his football back. He settled down at that point. The stadium started to empty. So it really went from being this, like, funny situation to a nerve-wracking situation to an awesome situation because that guy got his ball back. And, you know, it was thrown by the commissioner of the new XFL. So it kind of tied a nice little bow on the day, right? Yeah. Everything else was good. We had a great time with our buddies. And then this happened, and it just I, – you know, I don't know if I'll ever forget that story of him being an asshole throwing it around to this guy literally <laughs> chucking it on the field and everything like that. Props to Oliver Luck because he got it there, like, on a dime oh, yeah. with a spiral – like and it, the my first thought was Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, would never do that. Oh no way, no way. <laughs> like that's that that makes Oliver Luck real cool to me. That he didn't like be he wasn't bigger than anyone. Like he just he saw the kid like because the kid kind of was like it's mine, it's mine. I'm sorry, and he he got it up there because he probably threw it ten rows up. Oh yeah, from the field. Yeah. 
So he's he's throwing uphill like it was a toss yeah. and, and it was a spiral. He got he got it. There. He did Andrew and it was Proud. A spiral. He did Andrew Proud. Or maybe the yeah. vice versa. Now we know where Andrew truly got it because he taught him. Yeah, now where he taught got him it. well. Yeah. Well, he was a quarterback in the NFL back in the eighties. Yeah. That's so true. he's had some experience. That's true. That's true. So well, as we wrap up here, Kyle, why don't we grab your final thoughts on uh on what you thought about week one of the XFL and then we'll take it home here. I really enjoyed it, just like I said a few times. The overall vibe was very legit. It was a fun day, great weather, great hosts of Audi Field. Thank you, DC United, for leasing out your field to the DC Defenders. As a DC United fan, you know I'm happy to see them fully utilize that field. Hopefully, it doesn't get too torn up by you know American football being played on a soccer <laughs> field. But I have confidence that the groundskeeping crew will, will keep it going and i'm very excited to see where the xfl goes and hopefully it's successful yeah i totally agree i think that it had from all accounts a successful opening weekend really provided for some exciting football in the nation's capital we certainly appreciated the opportunity to keep watching football after the end of the nfl season and it really gave us a great excuse to catch up with the rest of the order Hopefully, the league is able to maintain their success and carry the momentum through the next few weeks. If they can continue to improve the on- and off-field products by just a little bit each week, then we think that Vincent Oliver just might be able to bring us off-season football for years to come. So let us know if you were able to catch the games, which teams you're rooting for, and whether or not you think the XFL is going to be here after March 2020 by connecting with us on social media. You can find links to all the Geek Catch-Up podcast accounts in the show notes below. Thank you for listening to Geek Catch-Up. If you've enjoyed today's chapter, please remember to subscribe to Geek Catch-Up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Check out Geek Catch-Up on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Geek Catch-Up Pod for updates on new episodes every two weeks. You can find links to all these accounts in the show notes below or at our website, www.geekcatchuppodcast.com. Stay saucy, you nerds. <laughs>